Um, we're in our, our series, though, just to orient you. We're in our, a series called Legends and Misfits. And it's about some of the different, um, what maybe we'd call heroes of the Bible. Heroes of the Old Testament, um, he- heroes of the Hebrew Scriptures. But it's titled Legends and Misfits because they are at the same time legendary, uh, as in figures that did these amazing things for God or found themselves caught up in this great story. And yet in another sense, if you look at it, uh, they're kind of misfits. They don't sort of fit the bill. Uh, some of them, uh, if you were to look closer on the stat sheet, don't have all the numbers, you know, for sports nuts. You know, you think about this guy is really good, but look at his completion percentage. Sorry, just another Tebow reference for you. Okay, um, look at the W's, people. Okay, uh, <laughs> So, so these are characters. We, we started with Abraham. Let's see, who'd we do next? We did Joseph and then Moses on Sunday morning. We didn't have a Sunday night that week. And then we did Joshua and Caleb. And then here we are tonight. Okay, it's probably been enough time away from Christmas that it's safe to talk about this. Maybe you've had the chance to get over any emotions that surface. But sometimes the holidays can be rough because of family members that you don't particularly enjoy being around. I mean, can we just be honest, right? Everybody sort of maybe, maybe you don't, but maybe you, you think of someone in your family that is kind of like, the, the, you know, the crazy uncle or, or I had a crazy uncle, actually. Um, I remember growing up, my dad came from a Hindu family and, uh, and, and he converted when he was about to marry my mom. It was quite simple, really, because she was an Anglican and he was a Hindu and she said, well, I'm not marrying uh, someone who's not a Christian. He says, okay, well, I'll fix that. And uh, so, so they got married. Missionary dating, we don't recommend it, but sometimes it works. Uh, well, um, but, but, but the rest of his siblings, some of them, some of them were, were converted. They were Catholics, but kind of nominal or didn't quite, you know, weren't as serious about it. And others of them remained Hindus. Well, the, the one uncle that, that lived in our town, he was, um, he, he was a Hindu, and, um, and he liked the sauce. I mean, he liked to drink. And, um, and he would show up at functions and get, get very drunk. And so I remember even as a kid, like being eight or nine years old and thinking, oh, I hope he's not there because there's no telling what he's going to do tonight. There's no telling. Okay, you don't have to nod your heads, but I'm sure some of you have family members. You can th- you know. and, so, and, and so there would be these occasions once in a while where I, I remember it was like a church function because my dad was very involved. My parents, both my parents were very involved in the church um, that we were attending, and, and we switched from an Anglican church to a, uh, a non-denominational church, and they, my parents were, you know, leading small groups and all this stuff, and, and uh, so sometimes they'd be at church gatherings, maybe, I, I don't even know if it was like, sometimes we'd host a party if, my, if, if a family occasion, so there would be a mix of church people and family people, the dreaded colliding of the worlds, right? And you guys know about this. So, you know, we're talking to our church people, and I'm thinking, okay, if, I hope my uncle does not bring his own stuff with him tonight, you know. And somehow or other, he'd end up sloshed by the end of the night, you know. And, and, and once in a while, he'd make, the, he'd just start up a conversation with someone. And, 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 and I, this is one of the more famous ones I, re, I recall, anyway. He'd be like, God, you believe in God? I'll tell you who my God is. You know, God spelled backwards is dog. And he said, that's who my God is. And he doesn't even have a dog, you know. But he's like, this is going and, and I remember as a boy thinking, oh boy, when is my uncle going to leave, you know? And, you know, if I didn't have, I, I didn't, you know, it was just a kid. But if you think about family members, there might be a skeleton in the closet. They might be a person that everyone else in the family is kind of like, ah, oh, 
we have to be around. Now, if you stop and you think, and you can't think of who that person is, it might be you. Just kidding. <laughs> the Bible, oddly enough, doesn't hide the skeletons in family closets from us. If you were going to tell the story of King David, you might think, oh, well, let's tell the story of his dad, Jesse, or maybe his grandfather, Obed. No, no, we're going to start with the story of his great-grandmother, who was not an Israelite. What? The great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel? We're going to backfill his story and you choose her? Excuse me? Now, a Moabite doesn't mean anything to us, but Moabites were the descendants of one of Lot's daughters. Remember, there's Abraham and Lot, and and forgive me if this is graphic, but it's in the Bible, but one of Lot's daughters gets worried that she's not going to be able to carry on the family lineage, so she gets her dad drunk so that she can get pregnant, and then it's messed up. And that lineage, one, one of the daughters' lineage, that becomes the Moabites. And in the Old Testament, Moabites gained this reputation of being seducers. I wonder why. It's later the Moabites who try to get Balaam to curse God. And so Moabites kind of have, it sort of becomes this euphemism for the seductress. So the Bible tells us a story about a Moabite woman who comes to Israel and throws herself at the feet of a man while he's sleeping. Because that doesn't sound like a seductress. Why is this story in the Let's keep that skeleton in the closet. No, no, no. The Bible wants us to know that God's plan from the beginning is to redeem everybody. All kinds of people, all types of people, all varieties of sins and stories and backdrops. And so the story of Ruth is, on the one hand, this sweet, beautiful love story that you could easily make into a rom-com. Romantic comedy, that is. <laughs> that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan may star in. And yet, when you look a little bit closer, it's kind of a scandalous story. Whoa, why, are we know, why do we know about David's great-grandmother? Think about that. We didn't need to know about David's great-grandmother. Just tell us about Jesse. He's probably a good dude, right? Good dad. He's got some good sons. They were warriors. He might have spoken at a Promise Keepers conference. I mean, this would have been a good guy. We don't know anything about Jesse. We don't know much about Obed. We don't know anything about the rest of David's brothers. But we know about David's great-grandmother, who was a Moabite woman. Just want to take your rose-colored Sunday school lens off a little bit and look at the Bible in a fresh way. The story opens... Uh, well, I, I, we'll pick and choose a few verses here. We'll look at R- Ruth 1, verse 8. Uh, the story actually opens about Naomi, who's Ruth's mother-in-law, and Naomi is an Israelite, but she's moved to the land of Moab because there was a famine in Israel, and so she and her husband move uh, to, to this other place um, to, to, um, uh, to, to try to make life go a little bit better. And then her husband dies, and, and so Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, um, go and turn back, each of you, to the household of your mother. Oh, and they lose their husbands too. Sorry, I'm missing that part. So they're all widows. Mother-in-law and two daughters, widows. All widows. Tragic. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, turn back, each of you, to the household of your mother. 
May the Lord deal faithfully with you just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide for you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband. This would have been more like the ancient custom. If, if a woman's husband died, who's, who was responsible to care for her? That husband's family. And so what Naomi's telling these girls to do is pretty wise counsel. It's good counsel. It's not bad advice. It's, hey, look, go and let your husband's household care for you. And she kissed them and lifted up their voice, and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they replied to her, no, instead we will return with you to your people. And Naomi replied, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there again be sons in my womb that they would be husbands for you? Turn back, my daughters. Go, I am too old for a husband. If I were to say that I have hope, even if I had a husband tonight, ladies, think this through. And even more, if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew up? And even then, they'd be like really young. Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters. This is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stayed with her. And Orpah went on to change her name, move to Chicago, and start a huge media empire. Oh, so that's not in there, is it? But there is this urban legend about her name originally being Orpah. Okay. <laughs> I digress, yeah. The first thing about this story is that loyalty can be a risk. Loyalty can be a risk. I, I don't want to stand up here and tell you tonight that God's answer for you in all situations of life is to be loyal no matter what. Because I, I, I don't know that that's true. And there are different situations that call for different things. But loyalty is a risk. It, it, we should point out that what Ruth does by being loyal to Naomi, and she does go on, and we'll read these verses later, she goes on to say, no, look, wherever you go, I will go, and your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. This is a big deal, what Ruth is saying. Loyalty for Ruth, you, 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 you might even say, was not even the wise thing to do. Probably, if, any, if Ruth was in our small group, we would not have told her to stay with Naomi, and, and maybe that we would have been, it would have been wise to not. But Ruth does something exceptional, and sometimes loyalty is exceptional. It's an exceptional risk to say, no, 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 no. I'm sticking with this. I'm going with this. I can think of loads of different situations where uh, people have said, okay, you know what? And, and maybe this is a bit delicate, but maybe in situations where a spouse has been unfaithful to another spouse, and you say, well, I have every right to leave you. It's true. But when it, sometimes a spouse, and I've seen this with a few, I ha, we have some very close friends of ours, two, a couple of them. Spouses say, you know what, no, I, I know that, but I'm going to stick and walk through recovery and restoration and counseling through sexual addictions. and all, We're going to stick with you through this. It's not always the obligation, but it is sometimes the good thing to do. It is sometimes this thing that opens the way for redemption. Um, when New Life went through the, the difficulties that it went through five and a half 
years ago, many people came up to a lot of us young pastors on staff and said, so I guess this is it. You guys are going to head out. I guess you're all gone. And probably at different points, we all thought, maybe, I don't know. But deeper than that, there was this sense in all of us that said, no, this is our church. We're here. We're here. We're not going anywhere. Sometimes there are times to be sent out as we've celebrated the sending of Rob, Brendel, and Ross, and Aaron next week with their first service. There's a joy in sending. I have felt a joy in staying. I have felt a joy in being loyal to this. Nobody can see the future, and so you want to be careful to not say the Ruth vow of wherever, whenever, forever. Be careful. Going back on it is a lot worse than than not saying it. But there will be times in your lives where you pray about a decision and you ha- there are right decisions on either side. It may be right for you to leave. It's not a question of right versus wrong, but sometimes you feel this compelling thing of saying, you know what, maybe if we stick, if we stay, what could God do in this situation? What could God bring about? What hope? What redemption? What could possibly happen? Loyalty, you see, can be a risk, but loyalty can bring about God's redemption. And Ruth is a, sto- is a story about that. Ruth is a story about how through her human loyalty, God brought about sovereign redemption. Not only for her, but for this people. And you see it kind of in the stories of, uh, of two situations in particular. For one, you see what Ruth's loyalty does to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Listen to this verse here. Still in Ruth 1, verse 20. Uh, Both of them went along until they arrived in Bethlehem. And when they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was excited on account of them. And the women of the town asked, Can this be Naomi? They're excited to see her after all these years. Oh, is it you? And she replied to them, Don't call me Naomi. (laughs) But call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi? Well, that's your name. When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty. Have you ever been at a place in life where you're so low that you're convinced that God Himself has turned His back on you? Have you ever been at a place where life has fallen apart so much that you're just sure that God is just toying with you? Naomi felt that way. Naomi felt like God had given up, that God had turned His back, that life was falling apart. She didn't choose this, but it had happened. And so she says, don't call me Naomi. It's God who made me bitter. You can blame me for being bitter, but I'd I'd rather you blame God. This is a dark place that Naomi is. Some of us have been in those places. Some of us know people who've been in those places. It's difficult as friends walking with people in those difficult situations to know, well, what do I do? Do you know what you can do? Just stay with them. Just stay with them. Oh, nobody's sermonizing Naomi right now. Oh, Naomi, the theology is a bit off here. I don't think Yahweh really does like do those things. I mean, are you sure it's not the devil, Naomi? This is not the time for theology. 
What Ruth does is she's, she just clings to her. Some of the best things you can do when you walk with someone who's going through hell is just to stay with them. Just stay with them. I'm staying with you. I'm not giving up on you. This is not the end. So Ruth stays with Naomi. Ruth's listening to Naomi say this and she doesn't, you know, pipe in, hey, Naomi, remember that psalm? Remember Deuteronomy? Just, just stay with her. The very next chapter in the story, Naomi come, uh, Ruth comes to Naomi and says, hey, I was trying to harvest grain today and I met a man and he was very kind to me. And she's telling Naomi about this, and in verse 20 of Ruth chapter 2 in the message, I want to read this in the message because it's beautiful. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, why, God bless that man. God hasn't quite walked out on us after all. He still loves us in bad times as well as good. And Naomi went on, that man, Ruth, is one of our circle of covenant redeemers, a close relative of ours. How does Naomi move from, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, to all of a sudden saying, God hasn't walked out on us after all. What was catalytic? What was the thing that brought about that change in her heart, in her outlook of God and of life? I think it was what Ruth says in Ruth 1, verse 15 to 18. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law's return. This is after Oprah has gone. Verse 16, Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and more. So if even death separates me from you. Could it be that God can use your loyalty to someone else as a way of showing them His loyalty to them? Could it be that because you stuck it out and said, no, 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 listen, I know you're being a real idiot right now and you're just not thinking straight, but I'm just going to stay. I'm just going to walk with you. I'm going to love you. Where you go, I'll go. You're not shaking me this easy. And that somehow through that, they begin to see that God hasn't walked out on them yet. That's what happens for Naomi. That loyalty can bring about redemption. But you know, Ruth experiences, she kind of reaps what she sows here. She sows this loyalty and Boaz, she reaps it back from Boaz. Ruth begins as an outsider She's a Moabite widow. Chapter 2, verse 10, she's meeting Boaz, and he's being uh, nice to her, which, by the way, this is kind of a side note. Uh, Pastor Brady really did a great job mentioning this this morning, but, you know, Boaz, Ruth was allowed to kind of harvest in his fields. You might be wondering, well, why was that allowed? How come she could go and just pick grain from a field? Like, it's not her field. You know, you don't typically see that. My father-in-law is a farmer. I don't know that people just come and take his corn, you know. Steal a cattle for a day, you know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But in Leviticus, I think it is, God tells his people, when you harvest, leave the edges. Leave the edges because they'll be immigrants and they'll be poor. 
And when they come, they need somewhere to find food and grain for themselves. So don't squeeze every ounce of profit out of the deal. Leave something for those who have no help. Now, fortunately, in our day, we don't have any issues with immigrants or poor people. But if we did, this story would say to us that maybe the church ought to think through this issue a little bit differently. I know there's laws and all that stuff. The citizen part of you can work out what you do with laws. But the truth is, there are people who are here, right here, right now, in our state, in our city. What do you do? Because if Boaz had been unkind to this immigrant widow, she would not have become the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel. What will your kindness produce? You don't know. What will your generosity produce? You don't know. But many of us harvest our fields all the way. We have no financial margin. We have no margin, period, in life. And if there is no margin, how can there be kindness? You can't be kind if there's no margin in your life to be kind. Boaz is able to be gracious to Ruth because he's got margins for it. Hey, he tells her, look, harvest on this side. Don't let those men bother you. Just go over here. I'll give you a special... Ruth 2, verse 10, And she bowed down face to the ground and replied, How is it that I have found favor in your eyes that you notice me? I'm an immigrant. Why are, you being, why are you going the extra mile? The church should be the voice of going the extra mile of graciousness. Just challenge you as you think through this. The extra mile of grace. That's, that's who we are. Jesus said something about that, didn't he? Okay. For the record, I'm fully legal and a naturalized citizen, just in case you're wondering. Okay. <laughs> Boaz responded to her, everything that you did for your mother-in-law after your husband's death has been reported fully to me how you left behind your father, your mother, and the land of your birth and came to a people you hadn't known beforehand. May the Lord reward you for your deed and may you receive a rich reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. It's Ruth's loyalty to Naomi that opens the way for Boaz to have a soft heart and be loyal toward her, which eventually leads to her own redemption. You have no idea what God can use our faithfulness to do. Ruth hadn't, didn't know that when she was making her promise to Naomi, do you think she was saying, okay, God, so now you owe me. I give to get. Naomi didn't know. She just took this risk of loyalty and somehow God uses it to redeem Naomi in her heart and also to bring redemption to her. The story goes on, Ruth 4, you kind of skip through it. Basically, Ruth realizes that she's found favor in Boaz's sight, and then she finds him while he's asleep, and and then he says, whoa, 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 what do you want? And she says, will you cover me? Can I take refuge under your wings? Which is the same phrase that Boaz had said to her a little bit earlier when he said, you've come here to take refuge under Yahweh's wings? And then she says, yes, I have but can I actually take refuge under your wings? Can I say to you that sometimes people don't know what God's refuge looks like until you show them the the refuge? That God is a refuge to people, not 
in an abstract, mystical way, but in a practical flesh and blood way through you. How does God tell the poor and the refugee that He is their refuge? Because you are their refuge. That's an interesting thought. How does Ruth know that Yahweh has covered her under His wings? Because Boaz covers her under His wings. How do we know? How do people know that there is a God who has not given up on them? Because you haven't given up on them. Does that make sense? That's the beauty of this Ruth story. And so in Ruth 4, verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate, the elders said, we are witnesses. And there's this whole ceremony because there's actually another man who was a closer relative who could have redeemed Naomi and Ruth. And, and, and he, uh, Boaz kind of goes to him. And Boaz at this point decides that he wants to be the guy. He wants to be the hero of this romantic comedy. He wants to be Tom Hanks. And, um, and so he kinda, it's really kind of comedic. This is the romantic comedy portion of the story because he, the way he sets it up is he talks to this guy and he says, hey, there's this woman that it's, you're kind of obliged by your family connectedness. You're supposed to uh, redeem her. And the guy's like, oh, well, okay. And then he goes, on, but she's got all this land and basically starts describing the economic baggage that she comes with. <laughs> she's got all these school loans and, you know, all this stuff. And, no, I'm just kidding. Although I did inherit that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> love you, babe. Um, and this guy kind of says, uh, no, no, I'll pass. And Boaz says, sweet. And so then they do this whole like sandal and spitting ceremony. And, this, you know, and then the elders say, okay, we are witnesses. May the Lord grant that the woman who is coming into your household be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. Both of them, the woman you chose and the woman you didn't choose. Can I say this? To be a church, you've got to have people you would choose and you've got to have people you wouldn't choose. Part of what I'm preaching about New Life Downtown is, look, there's going to be a community that you would choose because you love it. And it's, these are my people. And, and there's going to be people that you wouldn't choose. But God built up the house of Israel through Rachel, the woman Jacob did choose, and through Leah, the woman he didn't choose, and God, that was a way of God saying, I plan on building a people that are made up of Jews and Gentiles, of slaves and free, of Greeks and Jews. I want them all. And this is the elders saying, we know Ruth is a Moabite. She's probably not a woman you would choose. But that's kind of what God does, doesn't he? He builds a family for himself full of people you would choose and full of people you wouldn't choose. That's church. This is why I think the romanticized ideal vision of church just being me and my buds in my living room and the brats on the grill, of course, that would be anybody's dream, but that's not church. It's not church until you have to stand and pray and take communion next to someone that you would rather not be there. It's not church until there's households from Rachel and Leah there. It's not church until Ruth is brought in. It's not church until the person you wouldn't choose becomes part of the family. That's what the elders are saying. It goes on. May you be fertile in Ephrathah, and may you preserve a name in Bethlehem. And may your household be like the household of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. That's another scandalous story. 
Though the children that the Lord will give you, uh, through the children that the Lord will give you from this woman, skip down to verse 16. She's had a child now. And Naomi took the child and held him to her breast, and she became his guardian. The neighborhood women gave him a name. I love that. The community gave, I don't know, we're pregnant right now. I'm not sure we're going to let our friends choose the name, but this is a communal event. And they said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed, and he became Jesse's father. Right about now, the people listening to the story are like, wait, 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 that Obed, that Jesse? Jesse's father and David's grandfather. Bam! This is like that moment in Empire Strikes Back where Darth Vader says, Luke, I'm your father. Is it in Empire or Return of the Jedi? Empire, I knew I had it right. It's been a while, but I knew Rob Stennett would know too. This is that moment where you just thought this was a nice, cute story about a Moabite woman being brought into a really nice dude named Boaz, and all of a sudden, bam, this is the great-grandmother of David. What? (laughs) Ultimately, the story of Ruth is a story about God's loyalty to us. It's Naomi who sums it up best. God hasn't walked out on us yet. He hasn't given up on us after all. That's what the story of Ruth affirms. Because it opens, the opening scene is in Moab. It's all about Moab and Moabites. And the closing scene is the genealogy of David, the greatest king ever. Do you know there's no other book in the Bible that ends with the genealogy? Probably because that's not usually a very climactic way to end a story. <laughs> that's why usually they just end and they lived happily after, right? This story ends with the genealogy. Why? Because the genealogy is the point. A woman who didn't belong, God made her belong. There's another book in the Bible that has a genealogy in a key location. It doesn't end with a genealogy, but it opens with a genealogy. It's Matthew's gospel. And he starts to tell the story of how Jesus descended from Abraham, and he includes four women. One of them is Ruth. The other is Rahab and Tamar before that, and then Bathsheba. Although she's not called Bathsheba, she's called the wife of Uriah. In case you forgot, she ain't David's wife. And Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy of four scandalous women because in a few breaths later, he's about to tell you about another woman who's kind of got a questionable past. A woman who's pregnant and not married yet. And yet a woman through whom would come the Savior of the world. Does God use people who don't seem like they belong? You bet he. Does God allow people to be part of his story that are too far outside, that have had life kind of stacked against them? Does God have any space for you in his story? Ruth says, yes, yes, yes. Because in a very real way, we are all Ruth. We're all outsiders to the story Sinners that don't deserve a chance. But Jesus is our Boaz, our kinsman, redeemer. We threw ourselves at his feet and he says, yes, 
find refuge under my wings, and in me you'll join the greatest story of all. This is a story not simply about loyalty, but about God's loyalty to you. How do you know that God hasn't given up on you? How do you know that God hasn't given up on your son or your family or your spouse? How do you know that God is not walking out on you? You know this because Jesus Christ came. Because he lived. Because he died. Because he was buried. Because he rose. It says to you every time you take the bread and the cup, God is faithful. God is faithful. God will be faithful even unto death and even stronger than death to rise again. Nothing that is evil in your life, nothing that is shameful in your life, nothing that is wicked in your life has to be the last word about you. It doesn't. Jesus redeems it all. The last word on Ruth is not just that she's the great-grandmother of David, but she finds herself in the lineage of the Messiah. What do we do when you are overwhelmed by such good news? Because that is good news, people. That's like shout up and down good news. That's the good news that makes us sing. I think it makes us want to pay it forward, if you will. If we don't pay God back, we can't. But Jesus did say, you who have received much, freely, freely you have received, freely give. Why is it Christians can be faithful and loyal people? Because we serve a God who was that faithful and that loyal to us. He will give us the grace to be that way. When we are faithful and loyal to others, we display God's faithful and loyal love to the world. When we are faithful and loyal to others, we display God's faithful and loyal love to the world. Hey, that doesn't mean life's always going to work out. There were a group of 12 men, 11 of whom decided to be faithful and loyal to a Messiah. And I think they all had pretty ugly deaths save for one. There were many who were loyal to Christ and it didn't, life was not like a bed of roses. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that maybe through us learning to be loyal and faithful, God will show His own love through you, through me. And we can shine His light. I was talking a little bit earlier with um, Logan Wilson, a young man in our, our congregation, teenager, telling me a week or so ago he wants to start something to train younger boys about honor, school of honor. So tell me a little bit more about this. He's describing it a little bit. and I thought, you know, loyalty, honor, these are sort of uh, forgotten words, hey? Because we just do whatever we want to do. And, and, and I, I, don't, I don't know that it's a generation thing. But sometimes it's difficult um, to learn to stick with something when it's difficult. <laughs> and uh, again, I can't give you carte blanche advice that it's always right to stick it out. It's not always right to stick it out. 
Sometimes it's not safe to always stick it out. There's situations to leave. David left Saul after he started throwing spears at him. There's, there's a time to leave, you know? <laughs> but there are times to stay. And there are times that when we stay, we reveal God's own faithful and loyal love into that situation. We had a meeting this afternoon at this location downtown for New Life Downtown and found myself saying that no place is God forsaken if the people of God are still there. So where are you? At your work? At your class? In Afghanistan? In different difficult parts of the world? Where are you? Is there a way that because you're there, Christ's love can shine there? Is there a way that loyalty and faithfulness can display His loyalty and faithfulness? Is there a way that when someone says, man, what? how come you're not bitter about this? And how come you're not mad all the time? So you know what? I have a God who refuses to walk out on me. Whoa! And I want to tell you that He won't walk out on you either. That's the message we carry. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are selfish. We are fickle. We are prone to do what's easiest for us. And sometimes that's not always right. Teach us about staying. Teach us about loyalty. Teach us about commitment. Make us like our Father in heaven. Make us more like Jesus. Make us people right where we are in our workplaces, in our church, in our churches, in our homes, in our communities, in our classes. And I, and I do think of men and women that do find themselves in armed services and find themselves in places that are difficult and dark and full of depression and full of people wrestling with post-traumatic stress and Lord I pray for everyone who follows Jesus and finds himself in those places would you show them what it means to be a light show them what it means to turn bitter hearts into grateful hearts Show them what it means to be people that can say, hey, 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 God hasn't walked out on you. Make us carriers of that hope. Make us people who embody this hope. In Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.